0: the Boy you to sleep podcast we're going to take a look at a book that's written about a time in New Zealand if you enjoy the podcast and if it helps you get to sleep please hit subscribe and leave a comment in the podcast app that you're listening to this on and just say hello in general it's always good to hear from the listeners tonight's story is called A History of the English Church in New Zealand. The book is quite old. It's by H.T. Purchase M.A. We're going to get into it and hopefully it's boring enough to make you feel a little sleepy. We start tonight with the preface. If I asked why I took in hand a task of such difficulty and delicacy as that of a writing a history of the church in our dominion, I can really find no more truthful answer than that of a schoolboy. Please, sir, I couldn't help it. From boyhood's days in the old country when a copy of The Life of Marsden fell into my hands I felt drawn to the subject the reading of Selwyn's biography strengthened the attraction the urging of friends in later years combined with my own insulations and thus the work was well on its way when the General Synod of 1913 committed it to my hands as a definite duty. For the last quarter of a century, the Church of the Dominion has indeed possessed a history by my honoured teacher, Dean Jacobs. That scholarly volume could hardly be bettered on the constitutional side. In this department, the Dean wrote as one who had taken no mean part in the events which he describes. His ecclesiastical learning and his judicial temper rendered him admirably qualified for the task. In working over the same ground, I have perhaps been able to point out a few facts which he had missed or ignored. But on the whole, I have left this part of the field to him. This is not a constitutional history. It seeks rather to depict the general life of the church and the ideals which guided its leading figures. The Dean's description of the missionary period is also an admirable piece of work but he had not the advantage of stores of material which are now available. Through the indefatigable enthusiasm of the late Dr. Hocken, the journals of the early missionaries have been brought to this country and are made available to the student. His comprehensive collection enables us to come into close touch with days which are already distant from our far town. Of course, the historian must be guided by the principle, but he cannot estimate aright the work of the heroic leaders and rulers of the church unless he can follow the thoughts and careers of the less conspicuous agents the humble missionary, the native convert or thinker. In acknowledging my obligations to the late Dr. Hockin, I would wish to express my gratitude to the authorities of the Dunedin Museum, where his library is kept, and also to my friend, Arcadian Woodrow who kindly placed at my service, the unpublished volume, in which Dr. Hawkins's research into the life of Marsden are contained. For permission to consult the godly correspondence in the Christchurch Museum, I have to thank the Board of Governors of Canterbury College and for the loan of a rare and valuable pamphlet on the death of the Reverend C.S. Faulkner. I am greatly indebted to Mr. Alexander Turnbull of Wellington, Arcadian Fancourt of the same city, has afforded me generous help in recovering some of the early history of the diocese he has long served. While in Auckland, the Reverend J. King Davis a descendant of the two missionaries whose name he bears has enabled me to identify the positions of some long-forgotten pa, and has furnished valuable information on other points. Other correspondents from the Bay of Islands to Otago have assisted generously with their knowledge. Outside of New Zealand, I have to acknowledge help from Mrs. Hobhouse of Wales and the venerable Arcadian Hobhouse of Birmingham, the widow and son of the First Bishop of Nelson. Many clergy have kindly acceded to my application for photographs of their churches. A fair number of these I have been able to use, and to all ascenders I desire to express my thanks. For the view of the ruined church at Tamaki, I am indebted to Miss Brookfield of Auckland and for the excellent representation of the scene at the signing of the Treaty of Watangi to Mr AF MacDonald of Dunedin. In the preparation of the MS for the press, I have greatly assisted by the Reverend H. East Vicar of Leithfield. But the greatest help of all remains to be told. To the aged and venerable Bishop Leonard Williams, this book owes more than I can estimate. Not only has he furnished me with the abundant information from the stores of his own unique and first-hand knowledge, but on many points he is engaged in fresh and laborious research. Every chapter has been sent to him as soon as written, and has benefited immensely by his careful and judicial criticism. Without this thorough testing, my book would be far more imperfect than it is. It is due, however, to the bishop, as well as to my readers, to state emphatically that he is in no way responsible for the views expressed in this book. There are, in fact, a few points on which we do not quite agree. The intricacies of high policy or of mingled motive will never appeal in exactly the same way to different minds. My aim throughout has been to arrive at the simple truth and I have often been driven to abandon long-cherished ideas by its imperative demand. In the spelling of Maori names, Bishop Williams' authority has always been followed, except when a place is looked at from the pakecha or colonial point of view. Then it is spelt in the colonial manner, Readers may be glad to be warned against confusing Turunga with Turunga in the Bay of Plenty. Similarly, it may be well to call attention to the wide difference between the Tamihana Tawara and Tamihana Tarapura. Both were notable men, but their characters were not alike. They took opposite sides in the Great War. The scope of this book has not permitted me to trace the history of the Melanesian mission nor to deal with the island dependencies of our dominion. Even within the limits of New Zealand itself, the treatment of the later period. May perhaps seem inadequate, but the events of the years 1850 to 1890 have been already covered to some extent in my book, Bishop Harper and the Canterbury Settlement. While for the latest stage of all, I have the pleasure of appending to this preface a voluble letter from the present primate whose office and long experience enable him to speak with unique authority upon the life of church of today. Letter from the most reverend, the primate. Dear Canon Perchar. in consideration of my long career as a church worker in New Zealand, you have honoured me with a request to add to your forthcoming volume of the history of the church. Here a short account of my impressions as to her life and progress since 1871 and also my ideas as to her prospects and the chief tasks which lie before her I think the most convenient form in which I could attempt to supply the need would be by addressing a letter to you embracing these topics. Which letter, should you esteem it worthy, could be printed with your preface? In turning, then, to your first question, I have to premise that the life and progress of any institution are very largely affected by attendant circumstances and surroundings for which perhaps the leaders of the institution itself are not responsible. Thus, with reference to our provincial church at the period you mention, she was weakened by the loss of not a few of those upon whom she had leaned for counsel and stimulating influence. Bishops Hobhouse and Abraham, Sir William Martin and Mr Swainson, perhaps other prominent churchmen, such as Sir George Arney, and others less known, speedily followed their great leader, Bishop Salwyn to England or removed by other causes without any surrender to the weakness of a mere laudator or temporary actee I look back to the time of my arrival in New Zealand with a feeling that there were giants in the earth in those days many whom have more recently lost were also with us then Men like Messrs, Ackland and Hammer and Maud and Saw Cole, Mr Hunter Brown and of course Mr Bishop Hadfield and Dean Jacobs. Many of these were men of marked ability, men of who made sign and holes ring with their forcible utterances, men full of knowledgeable church like knowledge and love for her full of self-sacrificing spirit and determination to make her a praise in the faithful guardian of our church's influence, Primate Harper. The loss of such fathers of the church has been felt in the interval under review and could not but affect the life and progress of the church. It is not for me to say anything of those by whom their places have been filled. Another adverse circumstance which must be called to mind in such a review is the long period of commercial depression, which followed a short period of fictitious prosperity and inflated values misled by the apparently fair prospect of making money rapidly, of which prospect a shoal of interested persons sprang up to make the most. Undertakings were entered upon on borrowed capital, and properties were bought back at prices which could not be realised upon them perhaps 20 years afterwards. The consequence of all of this was a widespread desolation. My Dyson visitations were in those days largely made on horseback, and in a journey of perhaps many hundred miles, I had to look upon stations and homesteads at which I had formerly been hospitably received, whether their owners belonged to our communion. Or not, neither closed altogether nor left in charge of a shepherd. Many of the proprietors of these sheep stations had been liberal supporters of the church, and their run spelt disaster to the authorities of the nearest clerical charge, if not also the weakness of Dyson institutions. During these long, long years diocesan management was weariness indeed and not the less so because it was so hard to keep up the courage even of our church workers themselves. I am thankful to say that no organised charge within my own diocese was closed in that period but it was manifestly impossible to subdivide districts and so to introduce additional clergy. Little else could be thought of than holding on. By these circumstances, then, the life of the church was affected and her progress hindered. New conditions were developed and the rulers of the church had to accept ...and provide for these new conditions. I am far from saying... ...that the large displacement of the pastoral industry by the agricultural... ...was a misfortune either to the country or the church. As regards the latter... ...the large increase of the population upon the land... ...has given the church more scope for the exercise... Of her ministerial activities but for vestries and church committees the work is harder demanding as it does so much closer attention to the details in the old days one man might ride around the corner of 10 stations within a district and by collecting a 10 pound to 20 pound from each would thus easily raise a large part of the stipend of the clergyman and, at the same time, enjoy a pleasant visit to his friends. The collecting from a large number of scattered persons is a different matter and means many workers and much patience. It is not unnatural, therefore, That this outlying work is avoided and that the church officials rely too much upon the residents in towns and villages. This is a danger of the present and needs close attention. A vestry easily becomes content so soon as in one way or another it has got together enough money wherewith to discharge its obligations. For there can be no free and elastic expansion unless the interest of all her members is enlisted by the church and each is willing to do his part in the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. I think the progress of the church of late years has been satisfactory. We have a body of clergy who in devotion to their work and ability for the performance of it need not fear comparison with those of other countries not excluding the average of the English clergy themselves and I think at high time that insulting enactment known as the colonial clergy act was rescinded it is an unworthy bar to fall full intercommunion between areas of the church which profess to be at one. As to our lay people, I can only say that I often stand amazed at the willing and patient sacrifice they make of time and effort in the management of church affairs in synods, our vestries, and committees of every kind for the promotion of her work as to the future the great task of the church is to my mind the instruction both of the young clergy and the young lady as to the divine commission and real nature of the church since union through the truth is the only method authorised by holy scripture we must teach, and teach, and teach. That is the task of our divinity, schools, and of the clergy, in preparing their candidates for confirmation. Line upon line, and precept upon precept, definite and clear instruction should be given so that the future heads of families may know and value their privileges and the whole population will be impressed by the strength of our convictions. I am afraid I have allowed my pen to run beyond the limits you had in view, but you must do what you think well with this letter, and believe me to remain. Faithfully yours, S.T. Dunedin, Primate. That concludes our readings from tonight's book. If you're still not feeling sleepy enough to doze off, please feel free to listen to any of the other podcast episodes, and if you enjoyed tonight's episode, please leave a comment, it means a lot, and really helps out the podcast. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your night, and hopefully, you're starting to feel a little bit drowsy, and Enjoy the rest of the night. Thanks for listening.